Alright, let's open up our Bible. Psalm 92. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll make sure one of the guys in the back grabs a stack of them and passes them out. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. With the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish All who do iniquity will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. And my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes, my ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap And very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Amen. Father, we declare, Lord, that You are upright. And we are here this morning because we know, we recognize, we acknowledge, it is good to give thanksgiving to the Lord. Father, I pray that You would stir in our hearts today. Hearts of thankfulness, hearts of praise, hearts of worship. As we enter into this time together, set aside specifically, Lord, to acknowledge you as a fellowship. And we do so in praise and in thanksgiving and asking your Holy Spirit to teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was two years ago that that it happened. I can't believe two years have already gone by. Early November 2008 when I got the call. Now, things were bustling, a lot was going on here at the bridge. We had a reef fellowship like we were talking about. We had several things planned uh, for the holiday seasons that were coming up and, and for uh, Christmas coming up. And I got a phone call that there was a notice tacked on the barn doors in the back. And so I walked down here, and as I got closer to the doors, the words were very clear, bold writing, cease and desist. And it was something that I never really feared, but I always thought was possible that we were in this barn. And, and those of you who have been here a while, you know, we, we weren't intending to be here illegally, but as the church began in the living room and then grew up here in the barn and got bigger and bigger, we, we realized we needed to figure out how to be legal with Island County based on county code. We discovered after we already had over 100 people meeting here that, that we couldn't be up to code in this barn on this street. A lot of you know the story. I don't want to go back over it again. But ultimately, a phone call was made. Island County came out. Cease and desist. Stop meeting. Well, we respectfully declined the request and continued to meet and took it before the Island County hearing examiner. And by the spring of 2009, we were given favor with the county and we had temporary use permits both for the barn and for the modular units which we were told we would never receive on this property. But God is good. And God is in control, and He took care of that. 
But here's the thing, and we're still working through with the property and with building and with wetlands issues, and which is wetter at this time of year, I recognize, with the issues that we have to deal with over on the property. There are legal issues, legal, sorry, legal issues <laughs> that need to be taken care of so that we can get shovel ready. But here's the thing, I was thinking back over those two years and that notice there on the barn, cease and desist. And I realized that the county was on to something. The county was on to something. When we gather in this barn, that is exactly what we gather to do. Cease and desist. Not meeting, but working. Cease and desist. All manner of work. You see, the Hebrew word Shabbat, Sabbath, literally means to cease and desist. All manner of work. We come into this place, we gather, and we do so on a weekly basis, and and more often than that, Wednesday nights, and there are fellowships and Bible studies and things going on. But we purpose to meet together on Sundays in the morning like this, to cease and to cyst, to Sabbath with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 reads, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Sabbath. Shabbat. It set the Jewish people apart as a nation. It distinguished them from all other nations round about. God's command to the Jews to take one day and seven and rest on that day was unheard of historically up up until the point that God said, I want you to rest. It wasn't done. People worked 24-7, seven days a week. There was no stopping. There was no resting. There was no day off until God said, no, I want you to take a Sabbath. One of the great Zionist thinkers of the late 19th century, a man by the name of Ahad Ha'am, Ahad Ha'am said, more than Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. And it did distinguish them as a people. Jesus said, even more significantly, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What did he mean? Well, he meant more than the day, more than some kind of religious observance. It's a mentality that we are called to. It's not the legal practice of Sabbath that concerns Christians, followers of Jesus, as much as legally the Jewish people got rather wrapped up in keeping Sabbath and working hard so that they could have that day of rest. It's not the legal practice that concerns me this morning, but the living principle of Shabbat. It's vital to understand this. When we come into this place, we come to rest in the Lord. Not to snooze during the sermon, but to rest in the Lord. And this is absolutely key, especially as related to something central to the rest and the rejuvenation of a follower of Jesus. And what is that? Worship. Worship. You could almost say that Sabbath and worship are synonymous in principle. Because to rest in the Lord is what worship is about. It's casting all your cares upon the Lord. It's coming before Him in thanksgiving and praise. Because it's a good thing to do. Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath. Now this psalm along with Psalm 91 through 100, as we saw Wednesday night, was written in the time of the exiles. It's a post-exilic psalm. What does that mean? Simply it was after the time that those who were exiled in Babylonian captivity, those Jewish people, it was after that when they came back to the land. The Old Testament books we've studied, Ezra, Nehemiah, speak of that return to the land. They were the exiles. 
And this psalm is a post-exilic psalm written at that day, at that time, as a psalm for the Sabbath. A psalm when the people would, would come together and they would read and sing this psalm together, whether in the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, or out in the synagogues scattered throughout the land, that Ezra was key in, in getting those going, those houses of meeting, those meeting places. But Psalm 92, what's interesting is, aside from the Hebrew heading, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day, aside from that, there's not a single mention in the entire psalm of the Sabbath. There's nothing that says, this is a Sabbath song, come together on the Sabbath, worship God on the Sabbath, and yet, it is a psalm for the Sabbath. But what's interesting to me as you read through it, is it's all about the heart behind Sabbath. It's all about what brings Sabbath into the heart, and that is worship. So let's go through this. This morning I want to offer up to you six observations in this psalm as we consider Sabbath and worship and the impact of resting in the Lord. Number one, number one, the intention of worship. The intention of worship. Look at verse 1 again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Now, we might recognize the primary reason to worship is because God is worth it. Because He is worthy of all of our praise. He is God. So, if there's no other reason for worshiping, that's it. And yet, there's a secondary reason for worship. As it impacts you, as it impacts me, worship is just plain good. It's just good. It is good, he says, to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, almost high. Now you think about it. Technically speaking, God doesn't need our worship. It's not that he's some kind of, I mean, this is, this is man thinking. It's not that he's some kind of king sitting up on high saying, man, I'm not feeling very good about myself, so I need those people to tell me how good I am. It's not it at all. He doesn't need our worship. We need to worship him. He he doesn't need our praises. We need to praise Him. Why? Because, gang, we are creatures created to worship the Creator. That's why we were made. And when we function by design, it is good. It's good for you. I always hated that as a kid. You know, my mom would say, eat that, it's good for you. Well, listen, worship, it's good for you. It's good for you. Thanksgiving vaccinates the Spirit against selfishness. I mean, consider that. As I worship the Lord, as I am thankful to the Lord, it's really hard to sit in the place of selfishness because it's all about Him. Praise-giving inoculates the soul against depression. How often have you walked through the door down, depressed, having a hard week, and worship starts, and you just it, it lifts you up. It's hard to stay depressed when you're in the place of celebrating and praising the Lord. Worship even, even immunizes the body against weakness as we grow older. Really? Let me say that again. Worship immunizes the body against weakness as we grow older. And I'll show you why in a few minutes. But the great Sabbath principle inherent in this weekly practice of the Jewish people is this. God wanted His people to worship constantly. He wanted to train His people to worship and to be in that place of worship, knowing not only that He enjoyed it, which He does, but that it was good for His people. Verse 2, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The intention, God's intention for worship, that we would be worshipers. Look over in the book of Numbers, if you'll flip to the left in your Bibles. 
Numbers chapter 28. Now, it's not surprising we go to the book of Numbers because we're in book 4 of the Psalms, that section of the Psalms that correlates to the fourth book of the Bible, which is Numbers. And so here we are talking about Sabbath, and Sabbath is very much a Torah principle, and it comes up here in the book of Numbers, chapter 28. Listen to God's intention for worship. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. He says, You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering, which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering of the morning and as drink offering you shall offer it. An offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And so every morning and every evening of every day, God ordained worship. I want you to bring a lamb in the morning. I want you to bring a grain offering and a drink offering every morning. And then again at twilight, at the end of the day, a lamb, a grain offering, a drink offering. Bring it and offer it up. And it wasn't just about blood and food, gang. It was so that the people would come into the place of the sanctuary and worship. I want you to start your day in worship, the Lord said. I want you to end your day in worship, the Lord said. Every day, continually, that's God's intention for our hearts, our lives, as worshipers of His. So why a specific day? Why a Sabbath day? I mean, if we're doing this lamb sacrifice every day anyway, worshiping morning and night, why have a day set aside from all the rest to even focus more? Watch this. One day a week, a double portion was required. Verse 9. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. So what's going on here? Every day they worshipped, morning and evening. Every Sabbath day they worshipped, morning and evening, with a double offering. Two lambs in the morning. Double the amount of grain, double the amount of wine in the drink offering, and two lambs in the evening, doubling up the grain in the drink offering there as well. Twice as much. What's going on here? Listen, the practice was Jewish law, but the principle impacts and affects the way we worship today. I want you to consider this, that every day, every day we're called, we're invited to worship the Lord. One day a week, God would say to you, would say to me, I believe... I want you to worship with a double portion. I want you to go beyond your daily average worship and worship doubled up. Double up. I, I thought, okay, how do we apply that? You know, that, because so much of what was in practice for Israel is in principle for us today. So how do we draw out of it? How do we double up? What, what's that mean? And then it came to me. Jesus said in John 4.23, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshippers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, as I go through the week, and I don't know about you, I'll just talk about myself for a second. As I go through the week, day by day by day, I, I may keep my radio dial on 106.5, listen to worship as I'm driving around. I may stop at various times during the day or during the week and pray. I may at times and do open up my Bible and do some Bible study. And these things happen probably more randomly than, than I wish they would. If you're like me or the average person, there are times where you're praying, there are times where you worship, there are times where you're in the Word. But how often do you stop and say, for the next two hours, Lord, I'm going to worship you in spirit, and I'm going to be in your Word. Spirit and truth. I'm going to focus myself down now. How often during the week you say, today is yours, God. Today from morning to evening is a day of worship, a day of rest, a day when I'm going to enter into your presence and just stay there. See, that was the idea with the Sabbath. Because the people could worship in the morning and then go about their business. And then worship in the evening and then go about their business. And God said, I just want you to stop. Take a day off. Don't work. Stay out of the field. Don't get busy with all kinds of things. Just relax and be in my presence. Just spend a day worshiping me. I believe, gang, in Sunday worship. I believe in the value of it. I don't believe it as a religious thing or a ritualistic thing. I just see that when we come together as a fellowship and we worship the Lord together and we share the Word together as we take communion together and all this happens, I get stronger. Personally, I get stronger. I grow from it. I'm in this place with the Lord and that place lengthens in my life. It stays longer. Go further in this. Verse 3. Verse 3. With the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. Now, God's intention for worship is that we worship constantly and we double up weekly. But the instruments of worship now, number two, the instruments of worship are unique here. And the psalmist will do this in the psalm a couple of times. He's going to draw out specific examples, and they're not random or haphazard. These examples, the ten-string lute, the harp, and the lyre, three different kinds of musical instruments for three different kinds of worship. What do you mean? The ten-string lute was more like our rhythm guitar. It was an instrument that was strummed. And you can just imagine, you know, the, the psalmist out there. And just going after it. Because that was a loud instrument, the lute. It was known to be loud and celebratory and charging up. It's the, you know, it's opening song type stuff. You know, they get out the lute and they start going, open in song, open in song. And I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube, but there's a pretty funny YouTube thing I'll, I'll have to show you sometime. But that's what the lute was about. It was loud, celebratory, exclamatory worship. And it, and it, was, it was charged up. The harp. The harp was quiet and contemplative, and and emotional, sweet, adoring, fruit of peace. The lyre was different in that it was melodic, kind of like a lead guitar or soloing melodies. It It was picked, and so the notes themselves would be picked as the lyre was played. And that's more of an instrument for when you're finding yourself at a loss for words. I don't have words to sing here, Lord. You know those times in worship, those selahs, where it's just music, and, and you can just rest in the Lord. Sometimes you want to sing and shout. Other times you want to sing softly and adoringly. But there are times where you don't even have words to say. You just, you just want to bask in the presence of the Lord. And so the lute was all about wholehearted worship. 
and the harp quiet-hearted worship and the lyre still-hearted worship. Three unique kinds. Can I just encourage all of you, young and old, learn to appreciate all manner of worship and praise. Don't limit yourself. I grew up in a hymn-singing church, and I burned out on it by the time I hit college. I was just done with the hymns. Well, I'm in a place now in my life where I like them again. And I realize there's great value to the hymns. But I also love to rock. And, and let me just say, young people, you need the maturity of the hymns. Older people, you need to remember, God still rocks. And it is good to praise the Lord and to stand up and to get charged up. And it's good to bow down and to, and to worship quietly. And it's good to just shut up and be in His presence. All manner of praise, all manner of worship. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another, as, as we're doing right now. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, again, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all manner of praise. There's not one that's better, not one that's worse. All manner of praise to the Lord, the instruments of worship. Now listen, it's not just about guitars or saxophones or pianos or, or styles. When we enter into Sabbath rest in worship of the Lord, we become instruments of praise. We are instruments of worship. Here in this fellowship, we have lutes. We have lutes. We have those of you who just, you're loud, you're bombastic, and you cannot say enough about the Lord. And you know who they are, because they're the ones afterwards that are just saying, I'm just so awesome, just praise the Lord, and everybody's going, yeah, that guy's charged up. Lutes. We have harps here. Those who have a way of when they share with you the message of Jesus or they talk about what's going on, they just, there's just peace about them. And we have liars here, and I won't get into that. But we have all manner of instruments of worship. We are instruments of praise to the Father. And I think the Lord wants us to understand that. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. And this is Jesus speaking, by the way, through the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And while that's Jesus speaking, it applies to you, it applies to me. We're instruments of praise. Instruments of worship. And as we worship God with our lives, the music of our lives will impact people around us as instruments of praise. So Sabbath worship makes me into an instrument. And what's that instrumentation for? It's to lead others to Sabbath. To lead other people to rest. Verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad, watch this, by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. I would call this number three the identification of worship. Which simply means when we come together to worship, it doesn't identify our work, it identifies God's work. It identifies before us and all who might listen to worship that God is the one who does these great things. Not you, not me. We achieve nothing here at the Bridge Fellowship other than that which God is doing. It is His work. And we worship Him to identify that. The Jewish people did this back in Exodus chapter 20. We note in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy, I'll show you this, 
a couple of different things that were identified by the Sabbath. Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The identification of God's work in creation. When the Ten Commandments were given, God said, listen, I worked six days and I rested on the seventh. And therefore, because of that, when you Shabbat, I want you to identify all of my work in creation. It's a good day for a picnic. You know, when we travel in Israel, we stop uh, at uh, near a place called Gideon Springs. And there's a, there's a great place to swim and a big park there. And oftentimes, because of the way the trip falls, we end up there on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. And you see the place just filled with Jewish people all over the place, taking their day off, taking Sabbath, resting with the Lord, relaxing in the beauty of creation. Sabbath reminds the Jewish person of creation. It identifies that. But Sabbath also identifies redemption. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. God changes direction a little bit for the Jewish people. It's not to say that Sabbath isn't about identifying creation, but now it's got a new identification as well. Listen to this. Verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Listen, listen. So that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Well, this is different. In the Ten Commandments, he he wanted the female and male servant to rest, but now he's saying, I want you to keep Sabbath so that they will rest. Well, why, Lord? He goes on. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You see, for Israel, the identification of creation and the identification of redemption... God would say, when you Shabbat, when you rest, I want you to pause and remember you were slaves. I want you to recognize, even if you have household slaves or servants working for you, that they need the same redemption that you yourself have received. Do you get where this is going for us as believers? That we identify God's wondrous works in creation, but when we worship Him, we identify God's wondrous work in our redemption. And we recognize... But outside of Jesus Christ, in this world, there are people in slavery. There are people in indentured servitude who don't even know of the freedom that Christ offers. And even as we worship, man, it's, just, it's not about us in that, yes, it's about the Lord, but it's also not about us in that what should come to our hearts and our minds as we rest in the Lord is those who are striving outside of the Lord today. Those who are hurting and struggling and stressed out and and life is is difficult and there's no answer and no direction and no place to turn. And the Lord would say, Church, as you Sabbath, as you rest in me in worship, 
Remember, you were slaves. Remember your redemption. This principle of Sabbath identifies our salvation for us. It also identifies our sanctification, that we are in this ongoing change that is all the work of God. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now that might seem like a contradiction. On the one hand, Paul says, work out your salvation. And then he says, for it is God who is at work within you. Well, which is it, Paul? Am I working out my salvation? Or is God at work within me? And Paul would say, listen, this is the point. Work out your salvation. What Paul's saying is, consider your salvation. Work this out. That you're not the one that did the work. Work this out in your mind and your heart that God is the one who did the work and is still doing the work in you. What do you mean? Not only are you saved, but He's sanctifying us. He's changing us. He's he's growing us in our love for each other and our love for the Father. He's pulling the spiritual out in us more and more as we walk with the Lord. And I love that. I love being able to say I am more like Jesus now than I was five years ago. That should be the case for all of us, that we're growing in the Lord because He is sanctifying us. Go on, verse 5. Oh, He says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. And then He says, and I like this, A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. And I love how just brutally honest Scripture is. In fact, if you look over in Psalm 94, verse 8, He goes even a step further. He says, Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? (laughs) So you can tell your friends and and family that yes, the Bible does call certain people idiots. When are you going to get it? You're You're just being mindless. You're being stupid. Listen, read on back in Psalm 92. This is just stupid. A stupid man doesn't get this. Verse 7, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. All of your hard work, all of your effort that you did sinfully, that you thought would help you get ahead, it's just going to be destroyed. Pretty worthless. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies... O Lord, behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. So you can invest, and we talked about this last week, you can invest time and energy and effort into things that are going to burn, or you can worship the Lord who is eternal. And your worship will be eternal and a lasting thing. Number four in your notes, this is the intelligence of worship. The intelligence of worship. May I just say to you all something, in all honesty, that the most intelligent thing you can do in your life is worship God. That for those who say going to church is inane and stupid and mindless have completely missed the reality. It is not stupid to praise. It is not foolish to believe. Faith is not a foolish thing. Faith, gang, listen, faith requires great intelligence. And faith is an intelligent thing. The Lord said in Jeremiah 9.23, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. And let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this. If you're going to boast about anything, the Lord says, here's what you boast about. That he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who exercises grace, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declare the Lord. You want to be boastful about anything? Boast about the fact that you know Jesus Christ. That is intelligent. It's the smartest thing you can do. Worship is not mindless. Faith is not stupid. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. And listen to this. These words are great. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while that subject humbles the mind, it also expands the mind. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. How true that is. You want to know where true intelligence is seen? It's seen in the worship of the Lord and the study of His Word. That's intelligence. And those who would poo-poo the Bible. Yeah, I just said poo-poo in Sunday morning teaching. Those who would make fun of Scripture. Those who would say, you Christians are just, you're just foolishly following. No, no, no. It's the opposite, gang. Don't, don't misunderstand. Don't let the world trip you up in this, that your greatest act of intelligence is in your pursuit of the Lord. That is a smart thing to do. I, I keep mentioning every week the Truth Project. Wow. I mean, Del Tackett, this guy is amazing, and his thought process is amazing and huge. But let me tell you something else. You can look at Del and you can say, well, yeah, but he's well studied. He's been at this a lot of years, and so he's got a lot of knowledge base that he can draw off of. Let me tell you something. The quote that I just gave you from Charles Spurgeon, he said that when he was 20. 20 years old, and this young man was absolutely brilliant. Why? Because he was in the Word. Because he had the Spirit of God on him. Which brings me to my next point. And that's the inspiration, number five, of worship. The inspiration of worship. Verse 10. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Horn there is a picture gang of authority. I have been anointed with fresh oil. And my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes, my ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. What's he saying here? The inspiration of worship. I have been anointed with fresh oil. You Bible students know oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. When you come into the place of worshiping the Lord, you become Holy Spirit inspired. Anointed, as it were. With the authority of of God. A godly authority is given to you. In all the intelligence of worship, there is a great inspiration. What right did a 20-year-old Charles Spurgeon have to say the things that he said? What right did a 20-year-old kid have to teach people twice or even three times his age? As he did there in New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England. Why, why would someone 40, 50, 60, 70 come listen to the meanderings of a 20-year-old kid except that he had the anointing of authority on him? The anointing of God's Holy Spirit and the Word of God which is powerful in the Spirit. And I was thinking about that. Wow, Spurgeon was 20. And then I thought, 
Why do people listen to me? (laughs) Really? Why do you show up here? What right do I have as a 46-year-old What right do I have to sit here and teach and spout principles and values every week out of Scripture? What right do I have? There's an authority gang that is here, and it does not come from me. And it's not because, well, because Pastor Rick's been at the bridge for seven years and he started it, so he has some right to... No, that's not it at all. Seven years ago I was preaching to people and teaching. It's not because of anything that I've done to earn the right or your respect. It's because you recognize something, I recognize something. When we come in here, the Word of God is open in all its authority, and the Spirit of God anoints with authority to teach the truth. And so that's what we do. And it is not something that is exclusive for Pastor Rick. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have that authority. The anointing he's talking about here We've talked about anointing recently. This is not anointing for healing. This is anointing for authority, man. The authority, he says, as of a wild ox. You know what the word there is actually translated in the King James unicorn. Not because that mythical creature is talked about in Scripture, but because the wild ox described here was an animal that no longer exists. It's gone extinct. But it was a powerful animal in the day. Powerful and wonderful and a sign of of strength. And he's saying, look man, the Lord has exalted my authority. He's anointed me to have the right to speak truth. And whether you're 10 years old or 20 or 50 years old, it doesn't matter. If you are walking in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you have the authority to speak the truth of God. Make sure you test it against His Word whenever you're speaking. But that's powerful. John says it this way, 1 John 2.20 You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. How do I know if I'm anointed? You do. You don't have to have anyone tell you you're anointed, even though I'm telling you. You're anointed. But the truth is, when you receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you know. You just know. There's something in the way you read things around you and understand things and even what you would say. John says in 1 John 2.24, As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And in verse 27 of that same chapter, John says, As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you. Now it's wonderful, and the Bible tells us that God provides teachers and pastors for His church. And that's great, and it's important, and I'll continue to be here teaching, but the reality is, gang, you have an anointing to where you can open up the Word and learn it and know it and hear from the Lord yourself. He says, as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. And so the Lord anoints with authority all of His people. Not one above another, but all of His people receive that anointing. Verse 12, going on. I love this. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap. And I am. I realize that. We watched Toy Story 3 again last night. I'm not watching that movie anymore. Because I am full of sap. I sit there watching a cartoon for crying out loud. I'm dabbing my eyes. So moving. 
Well, Andy's leaving home. Buzz, Woody, when will we see each other again? It's ridiculous. Full of sap. And very green, he says. Now listen. Number six, the increase of worship. And I love this because as you worship the Lord, and and young people listen, as you worship the Lord, it gets better. And better and better. There's an increase that happens in your life as you follow after the Father. The psalmist, he ingeniously uses two trees to give an example of the righteous. The palm tree and the cedar. Why these two trees? Well, the palm tree, what my daughter Naomi calls the hula tree, Palm tree is amazing. If you've ever looked just at this tree and what we have over 800 products that come from the palm tree alone, it's incredible. It sends a tap root literally hundreds of feet down into the ground, which is how the palm tree can stand up in desert regions and in tropical regions. How the palm tree can survive long droughts without water because it's reaching deep to pull water up, that it might grow in strength. Senior saints, senior saints especially, listen. Did you know that the older a palm tree gets, the more fruit it produces? And I believe that's exactly what the psalmist is pointing to. If you look down, they will still yield fruit in old age. They will be full of sap and very green. That the older you get, it's not that you get to a point where you crest your ability in the Lord or you've done about all you can do and now you're just going to be a little less fruitful. More fruitless in your life. No, that's not the picture at all. It's the exact opposite. Senior saints, you have what all of us want. A fruitfulness that is on the increase as you grow older in the Lord. Praise God. That is just awesome. It gets better as you grow. And the palm tree is the symbol or, or of, of victory, the picture of victory in Israel. Of a victorious life. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, We don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Penelope D'Angelo is... She's turning 40. I know it's absolutely rude for me to point that out. I can't help it. I was talking to Penelope earlier. We, we first met Jeff and Penelope when they were in their late 20s. can't believe that. It's amazing. That's a long time. 40 years old. And yet, though the outward person is decaying, <laughs> our inner man is being renewed day by day. You know what? I'm, I'm playing. Say what? It's a great... Is it really? There you go. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Spiritually, spiritually, Penelope is better today than ten years ago because she is growing in the fruit of the Spirit of the Lord. Now, that's just 40. And we also recognize, I'm 46, and I recognize at my age that 50 is pretty young. 60 is not that old. 70, that's like nothing. 80, you know, the older you get, the more the age, you know, it comes down. But I want you to recognize something with me. We, as a fellowship, we need to honor our senior saints. And not as, oh, isn't it nice what they did. No, we need to honor our senior saints and say, look at what they can do. Look at what they bring to the table as we worship and walk together in the Lord. 
Those who are older, the, the, the insight and the wisdom and the understanding, and it's phenomenal. And in our culture, we say, no, send them out to pasture. Well, it's sad, it's wrong, and it hurts all of us. And we need to look at those who are senior to us in years and say, praise God for you. Thank you that you are here. We need to seek out that wisdom and counsel. We need to have a a fellowship that is involved at all levels. And I've been noticing this. God has been bringing a lot of senior saints here to the bridge. I talked to one gentleman this morning after first hour, and he goes, you know, i got a great acronym for you, saints. Seniors, let's see, what was it? Seniors alive in New Testament service. I like that. Seniors alive in New Testament service, declaring the gospel, sharing the love of Jesus Christ, fruitful and growing in their fruitfulness. And as I grow older myself, I am recognizing more and more how valuable and how incredibly necessary are all of those who are senior to me, but senior in the body of Christ. I, I was reading and thinking about this and praising God for it, and I walked out of my office and I said, Cheryl, we've got to have senior saints over. Because there are so many people, because I have children and where we're at in our life, there are a lot of people that I don't get to spend time with. And so, next Saturday night, all senior saints are invited to our house for dessert, okay? Uh, There's a sign-up sheet in the back, there are directions in the back, and we wanted to do it. I know it's last minute, so I I apologize, and if you can't make it, we'll, we'll have another opportunity, I'm sure. But I thought we could put it off till January, but then, you know, snow, and who knows what's going to be going on, and... And the, the holidays are coming, so Saturday night, Saturday night, Senior Saints, what does that mean? Well, I asked my mother-in-law because I didn't want to offend anybody. <laughs> What's a good dividing line age-wise? So we're going to say 65 and older. 65 and older, you're invited to our house next Saturday night. We just, no agenda, we're going to have some desserts, some coffee and tea, and we just want to sit down and, and pick your brains and talk about the Lord and share together a little bit and do that. Now, if you happen to be 65 and you're married to, like, a 23-year-old... <laughs> Okay, that's weird. If you happen to have someone who's, you know, you're 65, 70, and, and your wife or your husband is a few years younger than 65, come on, you know, it's, no one's going to be standing at the door, you know, checking ages. No, I'm sorry, you'll need to wait in the car. <laughs> so come on, the, the invitation, I just, the Lord just, just tapped us on that and said, we, we just need to get together. So if you're a senior saint and you see yourself in that category, next Saturday, come on over for dessert. We're going to do that together. The palm tree. Increasing in fruitfulness. Secondly, the cedar. The cedar tree, oh, what a picture of strength. The cedar. It's opposite of the palm. It grows in cold, mountainous regions. The wood is strong and powerful. It's a great hardwood. Those of you who work with wood, you know this, that the cedar, cedar wood uh, it has a tendency not to rot. It fights against rot. It fights against bugs that would chew and, and eat things. It's a great wood. Even after the tree is cut down, the wood is productive and useful. But unlike the palm tree, the cedar is unique in that if you plant a cedar by itself, good luck, it will probably die in isolation. It will probably get blown over, especially here on Whidbey Island in the winds. The cedar will go fast if it's all by itself because they have a shallow root system. And the way that these, these strong, you know, massive cedars survive is by hanging on to other cedar trees. Their roots intertwining and so that if you have a whole forest of cedar, that'll stand. But if you have a cedar by itself, it's going to fall. And what does the psalmist say? Oh, He'll grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. Planted there. 
This is something you cannot do outside of the corporate body. And that's get planted with other believers. And our root system intertwining so that we're strong together. And if the wind is blowing especially hard on me, you know, I have someone else I'm clinging to, hanging on to. Have you seen those cedars of Lebanon? There are times where those trees literally start to grow and they go sideways because of the wind. And yet if their root system is interconnected, they're strong. I think of the old hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Incredible. These two trees. The palm fruitful in old age, victorious in dry times, and the cedar that's strong when bound together with other trees. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. That, by the way, is why the Hebrew writer says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as, in the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. You know what? I encourage you to be here because I need you to be here. If I'm going to stand strong in the Lord, I need you. We need each other if we're going to weather the systems of this life. And the psalm finishes out to declare that the Lord is right or upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. The Lord calls us back together. This Sabbath principle to teach us, to call us to a place where we cease and desist even if it's only for an hour or two. We cease and desist from all of our works. Now, a couple of things before we leave here. The very existence of Shabbat made the Jewish people unique among the nations. As we said, they were the first nation to have a day off. First one to actually have that holiday. And so other nations round about would see them taking the day off and say, Really? You're not working on Saturday? Because if you don't work on Saturday, you're going to get behind. Something marvelous began to happen. The Jewish people got ahead. Everybody else toiling and struggling and working and trying to get the extra job done on that day. And the Jewish people took the day off and flourished. Got better because of it. And so people would have asked, well, why, why do you take that day off to worship your God? I don't, can you explain that to me? And a Jewish person could easily say, <laughs> it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good. They turn around and say, To declare that the Lord is right in all that He does. He's my rock. There's no unrighteousness in Him. Now, hear me on this. The word declare in verse 15 is an interesting word. It is nagad in the Hebrew. It literally means to go tell. To be a messenger. He says that we might be messengers that the Lord is right. We are those who go and we talk about the Lord and share about the Lord. And there's a Greek equivalent word to this that you may be surprised to find that you know very well. Spoken in the Greek, it's euangelizo. The Anglican version of that is evangelist. Evangelism. The person who is evangelical is the one who declares it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good. God is right. And what He tells us about life is right. And when He says we are better for worship, He's right. And we're those called to proclaim and share about this. Paul said in Romans 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, euangelizo. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, Timothy, hey man, be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of an euangelion, an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, he says. Declare it. Tell it. We come to Shabbat to rest in the Lord today that the rest of the week we might be messengers of the Lord. Now, listen. The source of the word evangelist or euangelion is interesting to me. In New Testament times, it was applied to soap sellers. You were an evangelist if you were a seller of soap. Now that makes sense. They would show up in town. Soap was a rare commodity. And when they got there, soap's here. Oh good, he's got soap. We can get clean. This town no longer has to stink. And so the soap seller was declared good news. Come and get clean. Which I think is a really good definition for evangelism. Come and get clean. Soap off all that grime and stink of the world. Come get clean in the Lord. But the root word is far more glorious. And the root word has to do more with what we think of when we think of evangelist, and that is a herald or a messenger. And specifically, it was a herald that was sent by a king to a people who had been under siege. And the herald would come declaring, Good news! The siege is over! The king has won! The army is victorious! You're free! Good news! The messenger would come and declare. But... If the battle was not over, if it was still being hard fought and the siege continued and the outcome was inconclusive, the king would send somebody, but he would not send an evangelist, a euangelion. He wouldn't send that person. Instead, he would send an advisor who would come and tell the people, look, here's what you do. The king wants you to stick it out. Here's how you stick it out as the enemy rages on. You need to store up food. You need to gather armaments. You need to get the kids into a safe place. Here are some things the king is just letting you know. We're fighting. Hang in there. Here's some advice from the king. As worshipers of the Lord, we are not called to be advisors. We are called to be messengers of victory. And I think there is far too many Christians being sent out as advisors in the world instead of messengers of victory. Our Christian bookshelves are full of all kinds of godly, good, helpful advice. But you don't come to Sabbath in the Lord so that you can go out into the world and give advice. You come to Sabbath so that you can be a messenger declaring victory! God has won! We take this rest because God has won. The work is done. That is our message. Now think, the seventh day of creation, God rested, right? Why? Was He tired? Was God just pooped? I mean, man, it was a long week. Have you ever tried to put skin on an elephant? (laughs) And and you get after about your 24, 25 elephants, and you're starting to get worn out. Did the whippoorwill wipe God out? Hold still while I paint you. Come back and wait. Was it the hanging of the stars that just got so incredible? Let's see, okay. And Terry's and, and Beta Centauri. And oh, there goes Orion's bell. Would you pick that up? And just got home and just, I mean, I'm exhausted. Six days of hard work. I can take a break. 
Is that why God declared Sabbath? No. God took Sabbath. Listen, God took Sabbath because the work was done. Complete. In fact, coincidentally, if you go back and track God's name in this psalm, Lord, Yahweh, it's written seven times. Verses 1, 4, 5, 8, 9, 13, and 15. The Lord is listed seven times. Is that significant? Absolutely. Because seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And Sabbath declares the work is done. Complete. Finished. Bible students, we said this last week, what were Jesus' last words on the cross? Last thing He spoke before He died. It is finished. Complete. Done. Time for Sabbath. Time for rest. We are messengers, gang, of the finished work of God. Not advisors. We're not about saying, hang in there. Jesus is going to come eventually. Here are some things we can do to make it through this week because it's going to be tough. Hold on. No. Our message is victory. He's won. Yes, Jesus is coming. No, He's not here yet, but He's already won. The work is done. Come and rest in the Lord. So why don't we cease and desist on Saturday like the Jews? Seventh-day Adventist. Saturday is the day. You have to take that day. Well, again, that's legalistic. And it's not about the practice of Sabbath. It's about the principle of Sabbath rest. And I want you to think about this before we go. Matthew 28 tells us that after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. You know the story. They look in there. John tells us there's an angel sitting at the head and at the feet of where the body of Jesus lay, which, by the way, is a picture of the mercy seat on the ark. It's a whole other sermon we'll talk about sometime. Awesome, wonderful. But there they were, and they looked in, and they see the angels, and the stones rolled away, and Jesus is not there, and they're terrified. And the angel said, Matthew 28, 5, Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as He said. Come see the place where He was lying and go quickly and tell. And of course you know the book of Matthew ends up with Jesus saying, I want you to go and tell. Go! Because the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of Sabbath. Rest in the Lord. And Sabbath at the end of the week, which the Jews still practice, Signals that the work is done. But as heralds of the King, we gather and worship at the start of the week to proclaim victory has begun. Let's pray. God, we enter now into a time, Lord, of worship, Sabbath rest. And Father, I pray that the principle of Shabbat would be felt and known in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, that we truly would enter into rest with You. They're not stressing about things, not looking for advice to make it through tomorrow, but Lord, truly to know, to know the work is done. It is good, Lord, to give thanks to You. It is good and precious and wonderful and blessed to enter into worship. For in this, Lord, we declare it is finished. You are victorious. And we, your people, rest in you. Father, bless this fellowship even as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.